Hello and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Topeka Capital Journal, the Kansas City Star, USA Today, BecauseOfThemWeCan.com, Ebony.com, and ESPN.com. The Martin Luther King holiday has recently passed, so we're going to have a couple of stories related to that, including one about how Reverend Dr. King got his first name. Martin Luther King's birthday was January 15th, but because of COVID, activities related to that holiday in Topeka will be delayed this year. Our next story is from the Topeka Capital Journal and its cjonline.com website. The title is, Living the Dream Will Take Place in May, But Celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Goes On Throughout January. It was written by Linda A. Ditch and was published January 10th, 2022. The Board of Living the Dream Incorporated faced a tough decision this past summer. Its annual banquet has developed into one of the nation's largest celebrations of the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. since it began in 1985. Members canceled the event in 2021 because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they didn't want to do it again for a second year. Because of the severity of the Delta variant during the summer, however, the organization was concerned about the well-being of the attendees. The group decided to push back the event until May 7, 2022, which fulfilled a long-held goal of founders Robert and Jackie Bug. Board member John Nave said, Robert and Jackie's message has always been, we want not only to recognize King in January, but we also want to recognize him throughout the year. The Bug's son, Anton, who was now chairman of LTD Incorporated, added, We weren't sure what was going to be going on with COVID and the community. So we're trying to keep everyone safe. We still wanted to have the celebration, so we just pushed it back. The first banquet had around 100 guests. Today, the event has grown to between 800 to 1,000 people in attendance. My dad was just a dreamer, Anton said. He always came up with ideas. He was part of bringing big brothers, big sisters to Topeka, so he's always been an innovator in the community. My mom was his right hand, and they built it together. We've had speakers and guests come in saying this is the largest celebration in honor of Martin Luther King in the country. They're very impressed with what goes on here. Even though the banquet has moved to spring, LTD Incorporated has events planned throughout January. The group has partnered with Unified Public Schools 501 Topeka Public Schools to collect non-breakable and non-perishable food items at donation bins in all district buildings until February 1st. January 10th through 14th is designated Respect for Elders and Preschoolers Week. The organization will deliver personal care baskets to Topeka area senior centers. They will also give MLK storybooks and coloring sheets to area preschools. Plus, an MLK storytelling video will be available on the Living the Dream Facebook page for preschoolers and their families to enjoy. A day of community service will take place on the MLK holiday, January 17th. The Community Food Network is partnering with LTD Incorporated to pack food parcels for children, families, and seniors at Harvesters. The service day will continue on January 18th, 20th, and 22nd. Anyone wanting to help can sign up on Harvesters' website, www.harvesters.org and go to the How to Help tab. 
Also, on the MLK holiday, Living the Dream Incorporated will present the awards for their annual MLK Student Art Essay and Poetry Competitions through a virtual presentation at 10 a.m. I see a lot of young leaders in Topeka taking on King's message, Anton said. One of the goals with some of the older generation is to reach out and teach these younger people how to go about shaping our community. In May, the banquet will feature a production of the two-person Broadway play The Mountaintop with well-known Topeka actor Danae Chobet, D-A-N-E-S-H-O-B-E, in the role of Dr. King. Set in room 306 of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, the play is a fictional depiction of King's last night before his assassination in 1968 after he returns to his room from giving the I've Been to the Mountaintop sermon. More information about the banquet and January events can be found on the Living the Dream website, ltdtopeka.com. A lot of events appear under the umbrella, Nave said. It's about bringing the community, the region together. Let's continue having the discussions, the tough talk about race relations and systemic racism. King fought for all that, but he didn't fight just for African-Americans. He fought for everybody. Robert and Jackie want to recognize him and push his ideology and philosophy and continue to have these talks not only in January, but in January through December. That is our continuous goal. That is the story. Living the Dream will take place in May, but celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. goes throughout January. It was written by Linda A. Ditch and appeared in the Topeka Capital Journal's website, CJ Online, and was originally published January 10th, 2022. The next story for today comes from the becauseofthemwecan.com website. The title is Civil Rights Icon Ida B. Wells Set to Get Her Own Barbie Doll in 2022. It was originally published January 6, 2022, and was written by the becauseofthemwecan.com staff. Civil rights icon Ida B. Wells is set to get her own Barbie doll in 2022. In 2018, on International Women's Day, Barbie launched its Inspiring Women series, focused on honoring historical role models who paved the way for generations of girls to dream bigger than ever before. The series was part of Mattel's Dream Gap campaign, which aimed to raise awareness about the issues of representation for young girls and research that showed that girls began to view their gender as inferior to boys and develop limiting beliefs about themselves at as young as five years old as a result of cultural stereotypes, implicit biases, and media representation. As a result, Barbie began creating dolls that allowed children to play with purpose, modeling Barbie dolls in the likeness of historical figures. One of the first dolls released was in honor of NASA mathematician Katherine Johnson, followed by more dolls made in the likenesses of civil rights pioneer Rosa Parks, literary icon Maya Angelou, and the queen of jazz, Ella Fitzgerald. Now it seems another doll is coming out this year, this time one in honor of journalist, feminist, and civil rights leader Ida B. Wells, an investigative journalist who launched a crusade against lynchings during the late 1890s. Wells was posthumously awarded a Pulitzer Prize for her work in 2020. This new doll continues with that honor, highlighting the fearless journalist in her activism for racial and gender equality. Youloveit.com reports. The collectible features Wells in a full floor-length dress adorned with lace holding a Memphis free speech newspaper. No official word on when the doll will hit the market, but some shoppers have already reported seeing it in Target stores. There is a photograph that comes along with this story. 
One is a sepia tinted photograph of Ida B. Wells. The other is an image of the doll dressed in black with white lace. That was the story civil rights icon Ida B. Wells set to get her own Barbie doll in 2022. It was originally published January 6, 2022, and was written by the Because of Them We Can staff and appeared on the becauseofthemwecan.com website. Coming up next in today's program is an obituary. It's from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's stltoday.com website. The title is Civil Rights Lawyer Professor Lonnie Guineer Dead at 71. It was originally published January 7th, and no author to this story is listed. Lonnie Guineer. Lonnie Guineer's name is spelled capital L-A-N-I, capital G-U-I-N-I-E-R. A civil rights lawyer and scholar whose nomination by President Bill Clinton to head the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division was pulled after conservatives criticized her views on correcting racial discrimination, has died. She was 71. Guineer died Friday, Harvard Law School Dean John F. Manning said in a message to students and faculty. Her cousin, Sherry Russell Brown, said in an email that the cause was complications due to Alzheimer's disease. Guineer became the first woman of color appointed to a tenured professorship at Harvard Law School when she joined the faculty in 1998. Before that, she was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Law School. She had previously headed the Voting Rights Project at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in the 1980s and served during President Jimmy Carter's administration in the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, which she was later nominated to head. I have always wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. This lifelong ambition is based on a deep-seated commitment to democratic fair play, to playing by the rules as long as the rules are fair. When the rules seem unfair, I have worked to change them, not subvert them, she wrote in her 1994 book, Tyranny of the Majority, Fundamental Fairness in Representative Democracy. Clinton, who knew Guineer going back to when they both attended Yale's law school, nominated her to the Justice Department post in 1993. But Guineer, who wrote as a law professor about ways to remedy racial discrimination, came under fire from conservative critics who called her views extreme and labeled her quota queen. Guineer said that label was untrue, that she didn't favor quotas or even write about them, and that her views had been mischaracterized. Clinton, in withdrawing her nomination, said he hadn't read her academic writing before nominating her and would not have done so if he had. In a press conference held at the Justice Department after her nomination was withdrawn, Guineer said, Had I been allowed to testify in a public forum before the United States Senate, I believe that the Senate also would have agreed that I am the right person for this job, a job some people have said I have trained for all my life. Guineer says she was deeply disappointed that I have been denied the opportunity to go forward, to be confirmed, and to work closely to move this country away from the polarization of the last 12 years, to lower the decibel level of the rhetoric that surrounds race and to build bridges among people of goodwill to enforce the civil rights laws on behalf of all Americans. She was more pointed in an address to an NAACP conference a month later. I endured the personal humiliation of being vilified as a mad woman with strange hair. You know what that means. A strange name and strange ideas, ideas like democracy, Freedom and fairness that mean all people must be equally represented in our political process, Guineer said. 
But lest any of you feel sorry for me, according to press reports, the president still loves me. He just wouldn't give me a job. On Twitter Friday, NAACP legal defense and education head Sherlyn Eiffel called Guineer my mentor and a scholar of uncompromising brilliance. Manning, the Harvard law dean, said her scholarship changed our understanding of democracy, of why and how the voices of the historically underrepresented must be heard and what it takes to have a meaningful right to vote. It also transformed our understanding of the educational system and what we must do to create opportunities for all members of our diverse society to learn, grow, and thrive in school and beyond. Penn Law Dean Emeritus Colin Diver, whose time as dean overlapped with Guineer's time on the faculty, said, she pushed the envelope in many important and constructive ways, advocating for alternative voting methods such as cumulative voting, questioning the implicit expectations of law school faculty that female students behave like gentlemen or proposing alternative methods of evaluating and selecting applicants to the law school. Caroline Guineer was born April 19, 1950 in New York City. Her father, Ewart Guineer, capital E-W-A-R-T, became the first chairman of Harvard University's Department of Afro-American Studies. Her mother, Eugenia Paprin Guineer, became a civil rights activist. The couple, he was black and she was white and Jewish, was married at a time when it was still illegal for interracial couples to marry in many states. Lonnie Guineer, who graduated from Harvard's Radcliffe College, is survived by her husband, Nolan Bowie, and son, Nicholas Bowie, also a Harvard Law School professor. My mom deeply believed in democracy, yet she thought it can only work if power is shared, not monopolized. That insight informed everything she did, from treating generations of students as peers to challenging hierarchies wherever she found them. I miss her terribly, her son wrote in an email. Other survivors include a stepdaughter, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter. There are two photographs that go along with this story. One is a close-up of Lonnie Guineer, wearing pearl earrings and glasses. The subtitle says, Harvard Law Professor Lonnie Guineer speaks to reporters before her remarks at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Breakfast in Boston on January 17, 2005. Guineer, a pioneering civil rights lawyer and scholar whose nomination by President Bill Clinton to head the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, was pulled after conservatives labeled her quota queen, has died at 71. The next photograph that goes along with this story is a picture of Lonnie Guineer sitting and smiling while holding a lavalier microphone in her right hand. She's wearing gold hoop earrings and is wearing a black dress. The subtitle to the photograph says, Lonnie Guineer speaks at the annual meeting of the American Society of Newspaper Editors, April 13, 1994, in Washington. Guineer, a pioneering civil rights lawyer and scholar whose nomination by President Bill Clinton to head the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division was pulled after conservatives labeled her quota queen, has died at 71. That's the story titled Civil Rights Lawyer Professor Lonnie Guineer Dead at 71. It's from stltoday.com. It was published January 7th, and no author to the story is listed. Up next on today's program is an op-ed piece from the January 14th edition of the Kansas City Star. It's about Sidney Portier. The title is, Once Upon a Time, He Was the Only One We Had. It was written by Leonard Pitts Jr. These days, we have Denzel Washington. We have Viola Davis, Kevin Hart, 
and Jamie Foxx. We have Octavia Spencer, Regina King, and Samuel L. Jackson. We have Idris Elba, Lupita Nyong'o, Taraji P. Henderson, Michael B. Jordan, Mahershala Ali, Tiffany Haddish, and Will Smith. We have, in other words, a bounty of bona fide mainstream black movie stars. But once upon a time, we, African Americans, only had one. His name was Sidney Portier, and he died last week at the age of 94. Praises have been raining upon his name ever since, and deservedly so. As an actor, Portier was known for an economy of expression and movement that could be shattered at any moment by a sudden volcanic intensity. As a social activist, he was brave, supporting the civil rights movement and using his art to illuminate and explore provocative racial themes. And he was a pathbreaker, first African-American to be voted the nation's top box office attraction, first black man to win the Academy Award for Best Actor. But to fully appreciate what Sidney Poitier meant, to us at least, you have to understand what it was like back when he was the only one. You have to know why Jet Magazine felt it necessary to run a page listing the Negro performers who would be on television that week. You have to remember how word that the Temptations or Supremes were going to be on the Ed Sullivan Show was enough to make you alert all your friends. You have to understand why Martin Luther King said, you cannot, when Nichelle Nichols told him she was leaving her role as Uhura on Star Trek. You have to have some sense of how it was to be a black in mainstream American culture, which is to say, largely invisible. From the porters toting Jimmy Stewart's bags and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, to the maid Mae West commands to peel me a grape in I'm No Angel, black film characters were almost always servile and incidental. In a society that draws so much of its sense of the world and itself from what it sees on screen, to be unseen there or to be seen only in demeaning caricature is, in a very real sense, not to exist. Culturally speaking, it is a kind of death. In his years of greatest impact, the late 50s through the 1960s, Portier required the movie-going world to see black people. In those worlds, the Miami-born Bahamian actor was a doctor, a teacher and a soldier, a cop, a convict, and a warm-hearted handyman. He embodied blackness in all its shades of humanity and did so with an unyielding insistence upon his own and therefore upon our dignity and worth. As they say these days, he represented. It is not an easy thing to represent. Indeed, it is an unfair, albeit often necessary, burden to represent a people. To be their avatar in unwelcoming places is to surrender some of your own prerogatives as an individual, your ability to act according to your own taste and moves without need of calculating whether that will adversely impact the millions of people whose hopes are embodied in you. Yet, Sidney Poitier did exactly that. Indeed, he bore upon himself the needs and aspirations of an entire people with singular grace and class. For so many years, he was the only one we had. As it turned out, he was also the only one we would need. That is an op-ed piece from the Kansas City Star that was published January 14, 2022. It was written by Leonard Pitts Jr. and was titled, Once Upon a Time, He Was the Only One We Had. Coming up next on today's African American Hour is a story from Ebony.com. The title is, Lauren Hill is executive producing a documentary on Amiri Baraka and his family. It was written by Rashad Grove and was published January 13, 2022.
2022. Iconic singer and songwriter Lauren Hill has partnered with screenwriter Orrin Moverman to executive produce a new documentary that will explore the legacy of the Baraka family of Newark, New Jersey. Directed by Udi Aloni, Why Is We Americans examines Newark's ongoing struggle with oppression through the lens of the Baraka family's decades-long involvement within social activism, poetry, music, and politics. Udi Aloni's name is spelled capital U-D-I, capital A-L-O-N-I. Amiri Baraka was a renowned poet, playwright, and was one of the leading figures of the black arts movement that began in the 1960s through the 1970s. With art meshed with activism, the black arts movement created a revolutionary ethos that left an indelible mark on black culture. Amina Baraka, Amiri's wife, was an acclaimed writer, dancer, community organizer, and also was a major component of the black arts movement. Ross Baraka, son of Amira and Amina, is currently the mayor of the city of Newark. In an interview with NewJersey.com, Hill lauded the importance of the Baraka family and their contributions to the freedom of black people. Amiri Baraka was a space maker. Ross Baraka is making space. I consider myself a space maker, Hill said. We're creating space. We're creating dimension to help the world get along in such a way and see connections beyond how we've been told to divide ourselves and how to specialize and separate, and yet true to ourselves. Quoting Amiri Baraka, Aloni added, You try to be black in a land controlled by white folks. You try to be black and the ghost tells you to be a ghost. Do you ask what's going to happen? The land going to change hands. The documentary will debut at the IFC Center in New York City on January 14th and also will be screened at the Pan American Film Festival in February in Los Angeles. That was the story. Lauren Hill is executive producing a documentary on Amiri Baraka and his family. It was written by Rashad Grove and appeared at the Ebony.com website on January 13th, 2022. Next in today's program is a story from the Kansas City Stars website, KansasCity.com, titled Jay-Z's Team Rock Renews Call for Department of Justice Probe into Kansas City, Kansas Police Misconduct. It was written by Luke Noisica, spelled N-O-Z-I-C-K-A, and Aaron Torres. It was originally published January 18, 2022. Team Rock, the social justice arm of rapper Jay-Z's Rock Nation, renewed its call Tuesday for an intense investigation into alleged corruption in the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, saying there is no excuse to justify the Justice Department's silence. In a letter taken out as an advertisement in the New York Times, The organization, along with the Midwest Innocence Project based in Kansas City, said the Justice Department has not responded to a December 20th letter that urged the agency to open a pattern or practice investigation into the force. We are committed to holding these so-called public servants accountable for alleged rampant acts of brutality and exploitation and request a meeting with the Department of Justice to discuss our findings, findings we hope will move you to act, the groups wrote. These allegations require the urgency that the Kansas City, Kansas community deserves. A spokesperson for the Justice Department said they could confirm having received a request for an investigation and the department is evaluating the information. Last year, a DOJ spokeswoman confirmed receipt for requests for investigations but declined to comment further. 
The police department also did not immediately respond Tuesday. In October, Team Rock and the Midwest Innocence Project took out a full-page advertisement in the Washington Post calling on the Justice Department to investigate alleged misconduct by the Kansas City, Kansas police officers. That letter came after Team Rock took legal action in Wyandotte County seeking the release of investigative files, personnel records, and officer misconduct allegations. Team Rock contends that Kansas City, Kansas officers have abused their authority, fabricated witness statements, planted evidence, concealed officer misconduct, and solicited sexual favors from victims and witnesses. They have pointed to former Detective Roger Golubsky, G-O-L-U-B-S-K-I, who has been accused of using his badge to rape vulnerable black women and was involved in the wrongful conviction that sent Lamont McIntyre to prison for 23 years for murders he did not commit. In their latest letter, the group said there have been vast claims of coercion, rape, and murder committed or facilitated by KCKPD officers. The Justice Department's inaction, they wrote, tells targeted minority communities that their lives do not matter. Eight FBI investigations in the 1990s showed evidence of depraved acts by the police department, according to the letter. The FBI recommended convicting several police officers at the time, it said. The DOJ's inaction since the FBI's warning 30 years ago proves that the DOJ has harbored the practices and patterns of crimes and discrimination committed by KCKPD, the groups wrote. In a video released Tuesday along with the letter, Trisha Rojo Bushnell, director of the Midwest Innocence Project, said a police detective with the department for more than 30 years raped black women. Yet he still draws his pension and is a free man, she noted. She appeared to be referring to Golubsky. And we know there are at least 20 dead women who had some sort of relationship, she said in the video, which featured some of the women's loved ones. Rojo Bushnell said in one incident, another officer walked in on the detective sexually assaulting a woman at the police department, saw what was happening, and then closed the door. This was not a secret, she said. It's not just him and his partners. It is an entire system. It is impossible to explain the depths and how much the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department had to cover for him. In December, Police Chief Carl Oakman told the Star he does not support a Justice Department investigation into the department. Such investigations, he said, tend to focus on current issues. He added that in his first six months on the job, he had not seen problems within the force that have not been the repeated subject of news stories. But Tyrone Garner, the new mayor and CEO of Wyandotte County in Kansas City, Kansas, has said he supports a federal investigation into the department. Garner worked for KCPD for 32 years, retiring as a deputy police chief in 2019. Throughout the mayoral campaign last year, Garner faced questions about if he knew about the corruption within the force, including Golubsky, and if he did, why he did not speak up. Garner has continuously denied he knew of any wrongdoing. In October, news broke that federal prosecutors in Kansas had initiated a criminal grand jury investigation into Golubsky, the former detective accused of some of the grossest acts of corruption a police officer can commit, as one lawyer put it, during a deposition. At the time, the police department said it had been responding to subpoenas from the FBI about Golubsky since 2019. In court records, Golubsky has denied the allegations. The news of the investigation came after years of reporting by the Star on accusations against Golubsky. That has included columns by Melinda Hindenberger, H-E-N-N-E-B-E-R-G-E-R, 
opinion editor, and columnist for The Star. On Tuesday, KCUR reported that the grand jury has requested a wide range of records from the police department, including more than two decades' worth of homicide cases. It has also asked for records about other police officers, according to KCUR. Jay-Z's Rock Nation has invested in probing criminal justice issues within Kansas City, Kansas. Last year, the group facilitated donations totaling $1 million for the Midwest Innocence Project to investigate wrongful convictions in Wyandotte County. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It's a picture of about a dozen people standing in front of a building at a protest. Some of them are wearing red T-shirts that say, Free John Keith Calvin. Some are holding signs that say, How much longer? And no justice, no peace. In front of them is a lady in a black jacket holding a phone and a microphone that is speaking to the crowd. The caption to the photograph reads, A rally organized by Moore Two and attended by victims' family members called for a Department of Justice investigation into abuses and corruption at the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department. That was the story titled, Jay-Z's Team Rock Renews Call for Department of Justice Probe into Kansas City, Kansas Police Misconduct. It was written by Luke Noisica and Aaron Torres and was published January 18, 2022 in the Kansas City Star. This next story is from ESPN.com. The title is, We Will Never Let His Name Die, How NHL Players Have Been Inspired by Willie O'Ree. It was written by Kristen Shilton and appeared January 18, 2022. Wayne Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-D-S, was drawn to hockey at a young age. He just wasn't allowed to participate until one specific homework assignment was complete on one specific figure. I remember being six or seven years old and I told my parents, I want to play hockey. And they said before I could, I had to look up Willie O'Ree. Simmons, a Toronto Maple Leafs swinger, told ESPNs recently. They wanted me to know why I was getting this opportunity to even be able to play the game. I did a lot of studying about Willie growing up, and ever since that, Willie has been my idol. Without him, not only black children, but other BIOPC kids as well, probably wouldn't have had their opportunities. Every ethnicity has its trailblazer. It's first. Willie was the first. It was January 18, 1958, when Willie O'Ree donned a Boston Bruins sweater and made history as the NHL's first black player. Because of a lifetime devoted to improving the sport he loves, O'Ree ensured he would not be the last. On January 18, 2022, the Bruins will honor that legacy and their legendary alum by raising O'Ree's number 22 to the rafters in a long-awaited jersey retirement ceremony. Due to a rise in COVID-19 cases throughout North America, O'Ree will have to attend the event virtually. His presence, though, could never be diminished. In speaking to those in and out of hockey whom he has inspired, his legacy will live on forever. O'Ree is a part of hockey lore, his story riddled with hardships overcome in the pursuit of one groundbreaking dream. Even before the Bruins initially recalled O'Ree to their ranks, he was harboring a painful secret. Just two years prior, the winger had been hit by an errant puck that left him blind in one eye. Had Boston known, O'Ree wouldn't have been eligible for his NHL debut. The entire course of pro hockey might have changed forever. 
As it was, O'Ree suited up in 45 games for Boston from 1958 to 1961, recording four goals and 14 points. His entire tenure there was marred by violence. Being the only black player in the NHL made O'Ree a focus of vicious, racially charged attacks from horrific slurs spewed by fellow players and fans to targeted altercations on the ice, one of which knocked out O'Ree's front teeth and broke his nose. But O'Ree would not be deterred. Even after he was traded to Montreal following the 1960-61 season, the Canadians already had a stacked forward group at the time, and O'Ree had to try drawing the club's attention during their Eastern Professional Hockey League team's camp. His performance there was strong, but O'Ree still failed to receive an invitation to the Canadians' next training camp. He would never play in the NHL again. O'Ree pivoted instead to a successful 17-year in the minor leagues, appearing in 785 Western Hockey League games and scoring 639 points before he retired at age 43. The time O'Ree spent in the NHL was too brief, but the experience fueled his incomparable second act, leading the charge for a more inclusive hockey space. Since 1998, the Fredericton, New Brunswick native, has been the NHL's Director of Youth Development and an ambassador for NHL diversity, roles that put O'Ree face-to-face with the generations of players his work is impacting. That vision O'Ree holds for a better hockey community has resulted in numerous awards and honors over the years, one of the largest being his enshrinement in the Hockey Hall of Fame's Builder category in 2018. It's also what earned O'Ree the Order of Canada, that country's highest civilian honor in 2008. And it's why the 116th U.S. Congress is bestowing the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal to O'Ree this year. At 86 years old, O'Ree's passion for his cause remains unchanged. That's all the more impressive considering O'Ree never chose to be a pioneer. He didn't ask to bear that burden, to have been one of one. But O'Ree met the challenge while creating space for more minority players in the hockey world. For those like NHL Players Association agent Austis King, E-U-S-T-A-C-E, O'Ree's own longtime representative who has traveled the road O'Ree paved to write their own stories. If it wasn't for Willie O'Ree, there would be no black executives in the National Hockey League like myself. There wouldn't be any black players, King said. And if there were, it would have been much later on. But what he went through really opened up everyone's eyes. And I think that because of his personality and character, he was able to handle it. Anthony Stewart has the photo hanging in his office. It's from 2003, and Stewart had just been drafted by the Florida Panthers. He had exchanged pleasantries with Commissioner Gary Bettman, pulled on that traditional jersey hat combo, and was exiting the stage when O'Ree came into sight. Their interaction was short but meaningful and remains memorialized on Stewart's wall. He was going above and beyond to make sure he was meeting all the minority draft picks, Stewart called. So just to have him be part of that day was definitely special. I still remember it. I have the picture of us framed. It just showed he cares about growing the game. He cares about the game of hockey. I've definitely looked up to players like Willie, who was the first. A decade later, O'Ree was still waiting in the wings to greet NHL draftees. Anthony Duclair recalls being selected by the New York Rangers in 2013 and sharing a really cool moment right after with O'Ree and fellow draftee Jordan Subban. It was just a time where I was in awe, to be honest, Duclair said. He's just meant a lot and touched so many people's lives. 
I remember we talked about working hard and being yourself. I really took those words to heart about just being yourself. Don't try to be someone else to please other people. Just work hard and have fun. That was his message. Subban arrived at draft day inspired by his older brother, New Jersey Devils defenseman P.K. Subban, already making inroads through the NHL. But meeting O'Ree that first time was something special for the younger Subban, cementing his beliefs about what was possible for his own future. Willie O'Ree was a tremendous role model, Subban said. I looked at him as almost a symbol of being able to accomplish your dreams, no matter what the circumstances. I think especially nowadays, there's a lot more talk about some of the barriers that black players have to go through playing hockey. When he was able to break the color barrier in the NHL, those barriers were most likely significantly worse. He's someone that I look up to as an example to just keep pushing forward. Blake Bolden can attest to Aree's power in that respect. It was his influence that motivated Bolden to blaze her own trail as the first black player to compete in the National Women's Hockey League and the first black female pro scout for the Los Angeles Kings. Willie has been an integral part of my life and journey as a black professional hockey player, she said. His words have fueled me to be the best version of myself and give back to the game. He is a legend, a trailblazer and inspiration. His legacy will continue to transcend the sport of hockey as an icon for true diversity, equity, and inclusion. O'Ree has always been more than another handshake. He has become a great friend to many mentees. Simmons was also introduced to O'Ree after being drafted by Los Angeles in 2007. Now they share an agent in King and speak often. A lot has changed over the years since then for Simmons, as a player and a person but he has stayed close to Ari and learned myriad lessons from him in the process. The thing I've taken from Willie the most is just his humility, Simmons said. After everything he's gone through and that he's faced, I've never met a more humble man. After what the game put him through, I don't know anyone else who would want to give back to it as much as Willie has. Willie has been a pillar in the hockey community and for players who look like myself since he broke into the NHL. He's a trailblazer. He's an astronaut in my eyes. Without Willie, it wouldn't be a possibility for me to be where I am. For me, Willie was just as big as Jackie Robinson, Simmons said. I think he should be viewed that way through the whole sports world. I'm a big believer in if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going to go. I took that to heart with Willie. It's virtually impossible for those players most impacted by O'Ree's legacy not to mention Robinson in the same breath. Both were icons in their respective arenas for doing what no one else had, and over time, they changed the perception of what players at the highest level would look like. Willie's the Jackie Robinson of hockey, said Minnesota Wild defenseman Matt Dumba, capital D-U-M-B-A. Breaking down the barriers that he did, being that name, that player of color, to look to him as the first person that ever did it, he made it possible for minorities to play the game. It just is really special because that representation definitely matters. And to know that he did it in a different era and knowing what he went through during those times, it's just incredible. It was a whole different time in the world. Stewart admits it was harder at 18 to appreciate what O'Ree endured during his early life. Now, being 37 years old and having experienced his own obstacles on and off the ice, Stewart can better understand O'Ree's past. Just imagine how bad Willie had it at that time, being the first and only black hockey player, Stewart said. That puts things in perspective when you have guys that trailblazed and paved the way to make it easier for players. He should be in the same conversation as Jackie Robinson. 
You see how beloved Jackie is, and that should be the equivalent of Willie in hockey. 2,000 years from now, when they dig up the archives of what hockey was or what hockey is, Willie's story and plight should be there with all the other stories as well. In the five decades since O'Ree's debut, more than 100 non-white players have appeared in NHL games, but the league remains approximately 97% white. That imbalance has led to initiatives like the NHL's Hockey is for Everyone, which strives to spread a message of inclusion. The Hockey Diversity Alliance has taken it a step further, launching its own messaging to not only highlight racism that is still prevalent in the league, but calling out white allies to amplify their voices. We talk about a sense of loneliness, being a player of color among your own teams now, Doomba said, but Willie was the only one in the entire league. So I think that's just an incredible feat, and we're all very proud of him. He's a legend. He will always be a legend in every way. Just being able to break down that color barrier, he's been a beacon of hope. That's what O'Ree was, in part, to a young Mark Frazier. Years before Frazier was drafted by the Devils in 2005, he was absorbing the stories of great black athletes who would eventually inspire his own 200-plus game NHL career. My first book report at a very young age was on Jackie Robinson. And being a Canadian kid and a hockey lover and hockey player, I had a similar interest in learning the story of Willie O'Ree, Frazier said. Just celebrating black excellence and the overcoming of adversities and doing it with such elegance and grace is something that I've always really admired with Willie. Frazier hasn't met O'Ree in person, but his journey has been indelibly marked by O'Ree's contributions to the sport. Like Doomba, Frazier can recall a sense of isolation in NHL dressing rooms, of not feeling empowered to speak up against daily microaggressions that still exist. At the same time, Frazier knew he wasn't truly alone in that battle. O'Ree had tackled it first to make the road ahead easier on others. His legacy is so much bigger than what he did on the ice, Frazier said, and that stuck with me. If Willie was able to get through these challenges in a time which I can only believe was tougher, to be resilient and to overcome than the generation that I grew up in, then that 100% empowered me and encouraged me to not let a racial epitaph or whatever you're potentially dealing with to win and not let it overcome you and to not succumb to it. Bryant McBride knows about conquering a challenge. He's a successful film producer and businessman and was the first black class president at West Point. But nothing could prepare McBride for just taking a walk with O'Ree. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do is go through an NHL arena with Willie O'Ree, Bryant said, because there's 10,000 people coming up to him. I can't even begin to tell you how many people he's met that love him, that just would do anything for him, because he would do anything for so many people. It's Willie's personality. It's his love of the game and his passion to include everybody. That's his magic. McBride captured that essence in the sports documentary, Willie, and he reflects fondly on what the experience taught him about O'Ree's legacy. He recalls going to O'Ree's house and seeing his Order of Canada award on the wall, next to his plaques for earning Employee of the Month from a security guard job. To O'Ree, all work is equal. All work has value. What sets him apart is that while it is really so easy to be bitter, Willie is just all about providing opportunities looking forward, McBride said. He's not looking back. He's lived through that, and it's hard, and it was still fun, and he's talked about it at length and with real candor. But he's looking forward and asking, how do we make it better? That's his mantra, and it has served him well.
It's a journey Oris seems destined to travel until, well, he can't anymore. Even at the pinnacle of a career for most people, being inducted into the Hall of Fame, Ori was wondering, what's next? One of the last things that he said at the Hall of Fame was, my job is not finished. I still have plenty of things to do and accomplish, King said. And he was talking about things that he was doing with the NHL programs. He wanted to make sure he helped kids and traveled the world to make sure he got the message across. To me, that's his lasting legacy. He did break the color barrier. He basically integrated the sport of hockey. He's the one that did it. And he was a hell of a hockey player as well. That's where it all started for Ori, with a pure love of the game. Raising his jersey in Boston will acknowledge all for which Ori has stood, one person destined to change the lives of many. I think he'll be remembered just as a man who, in my eyes, went through a ton even just to get into the NHL, but he didn't stop there, Simmons said. He continued on, and he continues to push for more equality and for other people who look like him to be able to play this game and enjoy this game. We will never let his name die. It will never die, I can tell you that. There are two photographs that accompany this story about the first black NHL hockey player. The first shows Willie O'Ree standing next to Wayne Simmons. Each is holding up their hockey jerseys. O'Ree is in a suit and tie. Simmons is in a white, long-sleeved dress shirt. O'Ree's jersey has the number 22 on it. Simmons has the number 17. They are surrounded by nine smiling children. The caption reads, Every ethnicity has its trailblazer. It's first, Wayne Simmons said. Willie was the first. The next image is a photo of two men standing in front of director's chairs with a movie poster behind them. The poster shows Willie O'Ree wearing a black and gold Boston Bruins hockey jersey. He has on glasses and is holding a hockey stick. His name, Willie, in white capital letters, is projected across his chest. The caption reads, Bryant McBride, shown with ESPN's Brian Lockhart, was executive producer of the Willie documentary. That was the article titled, We Will Never Let His Name Die, How NHL Players Have Been Inspired by Willie O'Ree. It was written by Kristen Shilton and appeared at ESPN.com on January 18, 2022. Coming up next in today's program is today's feature story. The title is The Interesting History of the Real Name of Martin Luther King Jr. and Why It Was Changed. It was written by Jim Beckerman. It appeared in usatoday.com on January 17, 2022. Michael King Day. Doesn't have quite the same ring, does it? Great names with great deeds. So maybe Michael King Sr. knew what he was doing when, in 1934, he made a momentous change, or rather two. He would thereafter be known as the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., his five-year-old son, also a Michael, would be Martin Luther King Jr. What, you didn't know that Martin was not MLK's given name? King Sr.'s mother insisted that she named him Michael, after the Archangel Michael, said King scholar Patrick Parr, author of The Seminarian, Martin Luther King Jr. Comes of Age. That MLK was not born MLK might be news to some, as we prepare to celebrate the 36th federal Martin Luther King Day on Monday. But the name change is worth thinking about. It says a lot about the man, the values of his family, and the larger meaning of what he did.
Symbolically, it matters, and it adds a certain historical gravitas to his name, Parr said. Martin Luther, the original Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, was, of course, the founder of the Protestant church. The Baptist sect, one of its branches, was the denomination of kings senior and junior, one of whom succeeded the other as pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. Luther was a rebel. Here I stand, I can do no other, he famously said. The very name Protestant has protest built into it. His church valued individual conscience standing up to oppressive authority, which in the 16th century was the Catholic Church. In MLK's day, the oppressive structure was racism, and he fought it with marches, speeches, sit-ins. He was arrested. His followers were beaten, but he refused to budge. Here I stand. It's likely that King Sr., Daddy King, was made newly aware of the history of Martin Luther and his resolute personality during a 1934 pilgrimage to Germany, the land of Luther's birth. It was a momentous trip, a game-changer. That was the year he and his son were rechristened, unofficially in the case of the boy, Martin Luther. After he went to Europe, he changed his name, said Robert H. Robinson, deacon of Mount Olive Baptist Church in Hackensack, who has been involved for years in the church's Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebrations. He took that on. The trip to Germany had other repercussions for both father and son. MLK is more than just an American civil rights martyr. He is a universal hero like Gandhi, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, a man who has been honored with statues in countries he never set foot in. His program was global. In his life, he addressed issues like war, world poverty, and class exploitation. Dr. King fought for the people, for what was going on in the world, Robinson said. That insight, that injustice was a global problem, not limited to the streets of Atlanta and Birmingham, also has its roots in Daddy King's 1934 trip to Europe, which climaxed faithfully at the Baptist Fifth World Congress in Berlin. They were bringing together all the international facets of the Baptist Church, said historian Claiborne Carson, director of Stanford University's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute and author of the Martin Luther King Jr. Encyclopedia. And of course, a lot of black people in the U.S. were Baptists, Carson said. There was a delegation of black ministers who went. There's a reason African-Americans historically have been drawn to the Baptist sect. In most churches, Carson points out, ministers are appointed by higher-ups, but Baptists allowed each church to choose its own minister, regardless of training or background. If you think about it, for black people, simply being assigned a white minister would not have given them much independence as a church, he said. In a Baptist church, you didn't have to have training at an official seminary or have degrees. You could be trained by another minister, as King's father and grandfather were. It was the one institution where a black person didn't have to depend on a white person for a job. That policy had far-reaching effects. It was natural that the Baptist church would be a center for black free expression. Also, protest as civil rights became an increasingly central issue in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Racism in America would have hardly been news to the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., but when he went to Germany in 1934, he would have seen something else. Adolf Hitler, the new chancellor, was taking a leaf out of Alabama's book. In Mein Kampf, he had praised Americans for excluding certain races from naturalization. 
Now he was proudly imitating the policy in Germany. In March 1933, Berlin suspended Jewish doctors from its payroll. In July, the denaturalization law revoked the citizenship of naturalized Jews and undesirables. So racism, not as an American problem, but as a world problem, was on everybody's mind. It was in this spirit that the Baptist Fifth World Conference issued a resolution. It was a forceful stand, their version of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. This Congress deplores and condemns as a violation of the law of God, the Heavenly Father, all racial animosity and every form of oppression or unfair discrimination toward the Jews, toward colored people, or toward subject races in any part of the world, it read. Was King Sr. fired up by all this? Undoubtedly, Robinson said, the whole point of a Baptist conference is to get you fired up. That's what it's built to do, said Robinson, who has attended many over the years, in Detroit, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and many other places. Generally, they're four or five days, classes in the afternoons, sermons at night. When you come away from these conventions, you're ready, he said. If you go to a conference and you don't come back inspired to do the work, you're in trouble. Some of these conventions are so powerful, they'll make you change. As, for instance, the name changed to Martin Luther King. It was a gesture to the larger world church of which he was a part, and also to the issues of equality that he would have seen firsthand were world issues. In Berlin, Parr said, King Sr. saw the increasing menace of Hitler, but he also saw embodied in the conference something else. He saw that portions of German culture were seeking to be the antithesis of what Hitler was describing, Parr said. In short, he was witnessing a minority doing what they could to bring balance to their country. When he came back to the States, King Sr. did attempt to create social change in Atlanta, emphasizing desegregation, all while a young and impressionable MLK looked on. As a matter of fact, King Sr. was instrumental in bringing the 6th Congress of the Baptist World Alliance in 1939 to Atlanta. In later years, King Jr. had mixed feelings about his namesake. There was another side to Martin Luther. The German priest was himself a bigot who persecuted Jews and favored death for heretics. It was not until 1957, long after he became famous, that Martin Luther King Jr. finally got around to changing his name Michael on his birth certificate. ML's opinion was that although the German theologian was courageous in rebelling against the Catholic Church, he didn't care enough for the common people of his time, Paul writes in his book, The Seminarian. ML shied away from the comparisons, Parr said. Instead of embracing any similarities, he chose to focus on the differences. There are five images that accompany this story. The first is a color photographic portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. It does not have a caption. The next image is a drawing of Martin Luther. The caption reads, Undated image of Martin Luther, German theologian and Augustinian monk who started the Protestant Reformation with his 95 theses. The next black and white photograph shows thousands of marchers proceeding down a street and sidewalks. The caption reads, 1965 file photo. Thousands of demonstrators marched to the Montgomery, Alabama courthouse behind Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. to protest treatment of demonstrators by police during an attempted march. At foreground center, in a white shirt, is Andrew Young.
The fourth image is a black and white photograph of Martin Luther King Sr. He has gray hair and is wearing glasses. He is sitting and wearing a suit. He's holding a hat in his left hand. Coming into the scene on each side of the photo is a person's arm that is holding two microphones each. The caption reads, Dr. Martin Luther King Sr., the father of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaks during a news conference March 9, 1975 at Nashville Municipal Airport. King was in town to speak at the Payne Chapel AME Church. The final photograph that accompanies this story is of Martin Luther King Jr. standing behind a podium giving a speech. The caption reads, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. addresses marchers during his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington on August 28, 1963. That was today's feature story. It was titled The Interesting History of the Real Name of Martin Luther King Jr. and Why It Was Changed. It was written by Jim Bickerman and originally appeared in usatoday.com on January 17, 2022. That's all the time we have for this African-American Hour. Rose will be hosting next week's program. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.